I am thankful for reminders of our confession of faith, like that song. And I would invite you to turn your Bible to Romans 14. Romans chapter 14, and we'll look at verses 5 through 9. There's a lot of diversity in church. There is a progression of maturing in church. I said last week that is not an obstacle that should be rejected. It is the very path of God's plan. I'm thankful that here at our church, there's not a uniformity. Everyone is not in exactly the same place. There are some Pauls and there are some Timothys. And I'm thankful that there is both disciplers and disciplees. We read about that in Romans 14. One person esteems one day as better than another, in verse 5, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. None of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. You can be seated And children, you can be dismissed to Children's Church if you would like. We have a Children's Church ministry out this door, down that hallway to the classroom, up to uh, second or third grade, whatever your parents decide is best. As I think about this text about struggle in church life, I think about the way sometimes there is frustration and even feuding that happens in church. Sometimes churches fight with each other over stuff. A lot of times they fight over things that are opinion. Frankly, opinions tend to be easier to feud over because there seems to be large gray areas. Absolute truth is just easier to discern. It's clear, it's plain, we would call it black and white. When the church feuds over gray areas, it is tragically damning to the church's testimony. And and the truth is, the church is kind of easy to take shots at. I mean, it really is. It is easy. Because the truth is, we say that we are born of the Spirit to new life. Old things are passed away. We have been given in Christ's salvation from sin's power. That's what we say. And then we live together. And we live like none of that's true. Sometimes. And so people outside the church, Christian people, Christian people, say things like, it's because the church hasn't, or they say things like, when the church gets its act together and starts to, and sadly you would hear those on Christian podcasts, Christian radio, Christian authors, because the church Marshall Siegel recently wrote, 
We may look at the church and see inconvenience, formality, monotony. But heaven is arrested by her. Watching salvation unfold and spread through cracked pews and simple living rooms. God bends all of history to hold up the glory of his grace to his church. And everywhere that you want to find it, you'll find some talking head who takes shots at churches. Well, the church. If the church would just. By the way, the talking head who says that, you don't know their life. I mean, truthfully, it's easy for all of us to stand up and give a Christian creed, right? And we would do it masterfully. But then we live together. And that's where the problem comes in. So unless you're living with a podcaster, don't assume too much. The Bible tells us that Christ loved her and gave himself for her. He's washing her with the water of the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing so that she might be holy and without blemish. This is the bride of Jesus. She's being washed by the word. Jesus prayed that she would be washed by the word. In John 17, verse 15, Jesus prayed, I don't ask for you to take her out of the world. Don't ask you to remove her from those criticisms, but that you sanctify her in truth because your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I send her into the world. And for her sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. The bride of Christ. Our text today is a passage that explains what it means to live like a Christian. We started this study in chapter 12, verse 1. And we move here into chapter 14 and 15, which are two chapters about how do we do Christian faith in community. Okay, chapter 12 and 13, how do we do Christian faith? All right, easy. Let love be genuine. Okay, got it. Uh, Don't falter in your walk of, okay, yep. Chapter 14, welcome each other's disagreements, not to persuade them to agree with you, but fellowship together. Woo, Christian life in a group, (laughs) not as simple. Yet, the very testimony of Christ's bride is what we're being taught to consider. So, sanctification in chapter 14 being described as all of us who are Christ followers acting like priests, worshiping God. Worshiping God. As priests, we offer ourselves in his worship. This means, and this is important as we get into these verses, we conclude whatever we partake of or whatever we abstain from is worship to the Lord. Whatever gray area 
you think you have to avoid or whatever gray area you think you're free to partake of, you better do both as worship to the Lord. So the title for our sermon this morning, and I'll, I'll try to be quick. There's a lot here. I trust the Spirit's going to make me skip things I don't need to add. The title is A Matter of Life and Death. Beautiful verses. Verses 8 and 9. Just beautiful verses. A matter of life and death. This text is explaining Christianity as representatives of Christ. Therefore, the church as representing our Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to give you two points this morning. First, Christ followers honor the Lord. You're going to see it three times. Honor the Lord, honor the Lord, honor the Lord. Christ followers honor the Lord. So whatever it is you choose to do, or whatever it is you tell another Christian they should be choosing to do, you had better harness that statement to honoring the Lord. And then, Christ followers follow him as Lord. Lord. The Lordship of Jesus Christ. We've already studied Romans 10. And in Romans 10, we have this wonderful invitation to human responsibility and response. In Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, the Bible says, If you believe in your heart that God has raised up Jesus from the dead, and if you confess with your heart that he is Lord, you'll be saved. Confessing the lordship of Jesus Christ is absolutely essential to true Christianity. I think... There are some who might advocate for confessing the saviorship of Jesus Christ, but not necessarily the lordship of Jesus Christ. And the Bible never invites us to confess that Jesus is not Lord. Lordship of Jesus Christ. So those who follow Christ honor him as Lord. Those who follow him, follow him as Lord. Let's look at the first one of those two. Christ followers honor the Lord in verse 5 and 6. What we see right away in verse 5, we're going to read in a moment, we see there's a conflict in church. So, be comforted, church. You're not the first church who's ever had something that they didn't see the same way as other people in church. Here's an example of conflict in verse 5. One person esteems one day better than another, while another person esteems all days the same or alike. Each of them who disagree should be fully convinced in his own mind. You would think that the Bible would say, okay, you've got differing opinions here. So somebody's right and somebody's wrong. And you've got to flip a coin to figure out who it is. But the Bible doesn't say that. Each person living in disagreement should be fully convinced in his own mind. Literally, what's happening here is that people are seeing some days above other days. What's the most important day of the week? Friday. Work's done. Saturday, family day. Sunday, the Sabbath day. No, stop. I can't even. Sunday's not the Sabbath day. Church day. Awana day must be Wednesday. We all can agree it's not Monday. Except for me. Monday's my favorite. That's my Saturday. Today is my Friday. It's almost five (laughs) o'clock. 
Some people thought someday were better than other days. Keeping sacred days. Now, it seems almost too easy to assume that this is probably Jewish Christians, right? Saturday, Saturday, Saturday. But the Bible doesn't really say it's Jewish Christians. It could be any number of things. The Jews certainly came from a context where they had a whole bunch of holy days. Whatever the days were, the Bible tells us to be fully convinced in our own mind. Wow. Be fully convinced in your own mind. So, let me bring that issue into our context, okay? So let's say that we're a group of Gentile Christians, and we say, Sunday morning, I said it when I welcomed you this morning, I said, we're celebrating the resurrection this morning, that's why we're here today. And you're saying, Sunday morning, Sunday morning, Sunday morning. And then we have this great influx of Jewish Christians who come in, and they're like, I could take you to several places in the Old Testament that say clearly, Saturday, Saturday, Saturday. Hmm. All right. The Gentile Christians say Sunday. The Jewish Christians say Saturday. And let everyone's opinion be firmly rooted. Be fully convinced in your own. Well, how does that work? Now, let me bring this into our own context. This is a little bit of application. We have disagreements in church. We should become fully convinced. That doesn't mean that we double down on our opinion. That doesn't mean that. Like, this is what I think. I'm not sure why I think it. My dad thought it and his dad thought it, so I think it. Don't double down on that. So first thing, when we are to be fully convinced, it doesn't mean we take our hands off the plow of biblical discernment and say, I'm just sure of it. Well, don't just be sure of it. Be biblically sure of it. What I mean by that is 2 Timothy 2. Do your best to present yourselves to God as one who is an approved worker, who doesn't need to be ashamed, but can rightly handle the word of truth. So avoid irreverent babbling, for it would lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. In other words, getting a bullhorn to share your baseless opinion about something will only produce more and more disagreement in church. But there is a way for us to do it rightly. Be fully convinced by Scripture, not by your own pretext, not by your own preference. Be fully convinced by Scripture. Now, by the way, that passage I read before from Timothy talks about a couple guys who were grabbing a bullhorn, and they were yelling, the resurrection already happened, and you missed it. And Paul says to young Timothy, he says, that sort of stuff just divides the church. Those men should study scripture and see the resurrection hasn't happened. God's people will be taken in the resurrection. God's people will be resurrected to life everlasting. So the first thing I would say is, when the Bible commands us to be fully convinced, be careful what you're convinced by. Be careful what you're convinced by. And again, I don't mean to be the pot calling the kettle black. You remember my opening about how the church is kind of easy to take shots at? Well, so are authors and, and, and media members and, and podcasters. I mean, they're easy to take shots at. I would only say this. 
whether it's in your church or whether it's on your computer screen or whether it's on your radio dial, if it's not the Bible, it's opinion. So be fully convinced. Secondly, I would say this. I'm not advocating for any one of you to say, well, I'm not fully convinced, but honestly, the title of weaker brother is uncomfortable. And so I see a bunch of these stronger brothers who are indulging in these things that I I think are out of bounds. I think they're off limits, but because they are, I will. That's not okay. For the weak brother to be persuaded to liberty that his conscience forbids simply out of a desire to move from the category of weak brother is sin. So you feel fully convinced that that thing is sin. As long as you feel fully convinced that thing is sin, don't do it. Don't do it. To violate your conscience as it stands today, as it's trained and equipped right now, would be sin. Now, there's another point that I don't have in this sermon about how do you operate with a sensitive conscience when the people around you don't exhibit that same sensitivity. Like they're indulging and you're feeling guilty and yet you're doing church together all the time. Wine and grape juice. Good example, huh? Oh, by the way, since we started this series, I've thought about several things I have weaknesses on. You can see me later. I thought it was just a short sleeve thing. It's a bunch. (laughs) I think about them all the time. Like, oh yeah, that's another one I have. I can't really explain it, but I know I don't feel like it's okay for me. Okay, here's another one. How about we serve communion? And we serve grape juice. Um, I believe Mr. Welch was a Quaker and was going to solve the communion problem uh, by making sure we had preserved grape juice instead of uh, wine. Oh. Some of you sit in the room and go, this really should be wine. And then if we change to wine, a bunch of you would sit in the room and say, mm, we shouldn't be having this wine. How do we do that? Be fully convinced it should be wine. Be fully convinced it should be grape juice. How do we do that? Well, the two points I have for you today is don't be fully convinced by your own opinion. Be fully convinced by absolute truth. Be fully convinced by the Spirit. And second, Don't just go along because you don't like the title of weaker brother and violate your conscience, okay? So that's the conflict. Here comes the command, verse six. Here comes the command. The one who observes the day, observes the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to him. The command is clear. Three times in that verse, we are commanded Whatever you're doing, honor the Lord. So you have these Old Testament Christians, these these, these, uh, Jewish Christians, I mean, who in Exodus 20 would say, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. They would be refuted by some New Testament Gentile Christians who might say Galatians 4, 9. Now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more you observe days and months and seasons and years why are you still living in the context of 
elementary or shadows that point to the gospel instead of the gospel itself. I want you to see that verse number six is a central concern of Paul's theology. You want to know what makes Paul tick? You can see it in Romans 14, 6. The very heart of idolatry is to refrain from glorifying and thanking God. The heart of idolatry is the omission from worship. That's at the heart of Paul's concern. Paul's not giving us a long list of, okay, you know, in the, in the modern day Western church, you guys are going to be going through and he gives us this long list of do's and don'ts. What he's saying clearly as a summary that covers everything, including eating and drinking and the day you go to church, is whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Which, by the way, is exactly what he gets to in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, there are two long chapters dealing with the issue of meat. Should you eat meat or broccoli? Two chapters of the Bible. And at the end of those, he says, whatever you do, whether you choose to eat or whether you choose to drink, do it all to the glory of God. This is at the heart of Paul's theology. Paul can tolerate diverse practice as long as they don't violate biblical moral norm, as long as they're motivated by the glory of God. The heart of the gospel is not behave. The heart of the gospel is behold. I think, in my experience, So many behave issues are solved when we behold rightly. We we think that there are certain issues, we call them mountains or hills to die on. There's so many. And then you behold God, and I think we see better the behave issues. The call of the Spirit to be followers of Christ is not a call to standards. It is a call to worship. This is describing how the gospel has been the definitive solution to the problem of depravity in Romans 1. Romans 1. They didn't like to think about God. They didn't like to honor God. They didn't like to obey God. They didn't worship God. They blocked him out of their head. They chose instead to put in his place creatures and ignore the creator of the creatures. And the gospel solves that. Not by giving us a new standard to live by, but by rebirthing us to worship. So we have here a call for Christ followers to honor him. Let's move into our next one. Christ followers follow him as Lord. Verse 7, Christ followers follow him as Lord. And verse 7 says, none of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. I don't have time to preach about it, but I wonder which one you think you're more susceptible to. I know which one I'm more susceptible to. I honestly wonder if God's plan is for me to be alive because I'm not ready to die well yet. 
That makes sense? There was a time about nine years ago, I had become convinced in my own mind that I was dying. I was spending a lot of time at the hospital. There was definitely something wrong with me. I didn't know what it was. And I was vexed. And I remember one day talking to a pastor friend and saying, my greatest concern is that I'm not ready to die well yet. That's what I thought. I wonder, as you read that verse, you don't get to live your life to yourself and you don't get to die to yourself. I wonder which one you think is harder. And again, I know which one I think. Verse 8. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. The believer's worship desire is not worship for worship's sake. Be careful that worship doesn't become what you worship, right? But live to the Lord. In these verses, there is a theological basis for all of this conversation about soul liberty and the unity and testimony of the body of Christ. Because the Lord, the Lord, he is redeemer, he is the head, he is the foundation, no other foundation can be laid. So when you think about how you interact with each other's opinions and how patient you think you can be, remember the Lord, the Lord. None of us lives or dies to himself, but live to the Lord. At the root of Paul's concern is this statement, live to the Lord. That all believers consciously live to please the Lord. And all of life, and even at the hour of death, the believer's aim is how will this glorify the Lord? To bring praise and honor to his name. And even as we die, we resign ourselves to God's will and we endeavor to please him. Now, it's important. I want to read this quote from Tom Schreiner in his commentary on Romans 14 because I am not suggesting that sin and its death has somehow lost sting. Oh, it stings and it's bitter and we do not look forward to it. But... The reason we can say that we resign ourselves to God's will even in death is not because death itself, Schreiner says, not because death itself has lost its character as the wage of sin or that it has ceased to be the final enemy. Death does not become good. It is an evil abnormality that sin brought into the world. End quote. However, the transformed attitude to death comes from the faith in what Christ has done to death and from a living hope that he has completed in this work of redemption. This is so radical in the life of Christ's followers that Paul, who writes this, could say, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. To live is good, to live to Christ, but to die to him is even better. Why? Because we the Lord's. The reason why living to him, dying to him, not living to ourselves, not dying to ourselves, the reason is because we are the Lord's. 
God's sovereign over our life. That's pretty clear in verse 8. Believers are under the lordship of Christ. Therefore, that reality transcends life and death. Therefore, to please and honor him both in life and death. Now, at this point, we get to, we, we have the conflict, we have the command, and at this point in the passage, we have a catalyst. Like, you're going to stand up in a minute, we're going to pray and be dismissed. And when we go, what's going to compel us? What is the catalyst? It's in verse 9. How will we do this? How will we live to the Lord? How will we die to the Lord? It's in verse 9. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Christ begins, dies, but doesn't stay dead. He lives again. Because we are dead in our sins. But in our unity with Christ, we have life forevermore. We live forever. Christ died and lives again so that he might be Lord, the master, the possessor of the dead who are now alive. Lordship of Christ is established here based on two unspeakable, absolute realities. First one is found in Acts chapter 2. To this end, Christ died. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. So let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made Christ both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Let it be known for sure that this Jesus, who you crucified, God made him to be Lord. He is the Christ. He died. Definitive reality. And then in Romans 1. Concerning his son, who was a descendant of David, according to the flesh, was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. How can we live to him as Lord, even in the way we have different opinions? How can we die to him as Lord, even though death is a bitter, unwelcome sting? By saying, Jesus is Lord because he died and he rose from the dead, giving life to us. Philippians 2.9, Therefore, God has exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ is the Lord of every circumstance, including life and death. Therefore, he is the Lord over the circumstance of whatever it is we're disagreeing about whatever personal opinion we have, it is covered because life and death are covered by Jesus living and dying and living again. Paul stresses the big picture that helps us deal with these little pictures. Picture is ownership. 
1 Corinthians 6, 20 says, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Follow him, follow him, follow him. Honor him, honor him, honor him. Don't live to yourself, don't die to yourself. But whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do to the glory of God. The problem was that they had become so concerned with how and when to worship that they had forgotten the issue of worship itself. Reminds me of the woman at the well. She had gotten so distracted by the disagreement between Jews and Samaritans. Well, you know, my tribe says I'm supposed to go that place to worship. And then your tribe, Jesus, says you're supposed to go to that place to worship. And Jesus says, stop. You have forgotten one thing, worship. And that applies directly to almost all of the tensions we feel over our opinions. It's not about the opinion. It's about worship. It's not about Saturdays and Sundays. It's about life and death. The life of Christ, the death of Christ in our place. Christ has died and rose again for this reason, to be Lord. You know, let me say a word about the gospel. The gospel will be clearest to us when we understand that at the blazing center of the gospel is the exaltation of Jesus Christ. When we see the gospel for what it provides for us, We will see the gospel in shadows, dimly. But when we see the gospel for what it really is, the exaltation of Jesus Christ. I heard one man say it this way. I just shared this with someone the other day. It was like someone had turned the lights on to their Bible. And all of the corners that were hard to understand were now brightly lit. When we see the gospel for what it is most truly, the radiant exaltation of Jesus Christ. And I think seeing the gospel for what it is brings us to worship, gives us perspective of things like life and death, and therefore solves by almost eliminating the questions of personal opinions. Say, for example, the next time someone comes to you and says, oh, I've picked on some, I want to move to one, but I don't know. I've picked on, like, playing cards. I want to think of a new one. Because they're so fun to pick at, right? I can't think of a new one. And I don't want to open up to the congregation, because, oh, boy. Um, next time you and a good Christian friend are debating the ethical dilemma of, oh, that triggered one in my mind yesterday that I will not bring up. Um, the ethical dilemma of playing cards. And you get into a constructive and loving conversation about it, which is okay. I'm going to talk about that in weeks to come. I'm going to talk about how do we operate in our differences in a way that still keeps discipleship at the center. I'm going to talk about that in a few weeks. 
But the next time you're having that discussion and you feel like it's becoming a tension, like, ooh, we've both said some things that kind of are piercing. Maybe you just say, but you know what? Whether we live or whether we die, it's to Christ. He's our Lord. And we follow him, we honor him in whatever we do. Because someday all this is going to make perfect sense. Because we will be fully saved. We'll be like him because we see him as he is. Isn't that awesome? And they say, yeah, it's awesome. All right, next conversation. Right? That's what the scripture is giving us here. Christ followers are Christ worshipers. Called not to standards, but to worship. Not to behave first, but to behold and to function out of that. Priests offering ourselves as sacrifice on the altar of his praise. Let me give you three imperative conclusions to to this text. I want you to apply this text like this. Remember, we're not talking about sin. We're talking about self or the potential for selfishness, but we're not talking about sin. Understand that the weaker brother often thinks himself stronger than the strong one. Just remember that. The person who has called a longer list of things taboo, like these are all taboos. Like the church I pastored before here, we lived in a very strong Amish Mennonite community. They had a bunch of taboos. And, and they would have thought of me, I was basically a child of the devil because of the sort of buttons I would put on my winter coat, or a zipper, a zipper. (sighs) I had gone to meet a young man in a barn. Church member said, there's this young guy, he's 17 years old. He's been listening to Christian radio in the barn secretly, and his family doesn't know, and he's heard the gospel. But now he wants to talk to someone in person. And I went to a barn, and I had to park down the road so that the farmer wouldn't turn the young Amish man into his parents. So I parked down the road, and I walked and went in a side entrance to the barn and sat and talked to this young man and tried to wrap my mind around his strengths as an Amish man. And I said, what, what do you base your righteousness on? And he said, the law. I said, oh, like the Old Testament. No. I said, well, like the, he goes, no, the law. And I said, well, the law, like, like not being a good citizen? No, no. I came to learn that didn't matter at all. No, no, not that. And he said this to me. And I can see him. I can see him doing it in front of me. He said, the law, like hook and eye. And I said, what? He said, yeah, see my coat? This side has a hook. This side has a ring, hook and eye. That's how I'm righteous. Oh, no. But he knew that wasn't his righteousness. By the time I met with him, he knew better. But Christian, I wonder, I wonder if we sometimes put our preferences in the category of our deservedness of righteousness. If we do, we forget the lordship of Christ. We forget worship Know that none of this is motivated by feeling. 
but what motivates us is the redemption of Christ. So I want to remind you of this. I, I, I probably will say this at the end of all of these sermons in this series. In those things that are essential to Scripture, I am not encouraging you to a sort of pragmatism that is so rampant in our culture. The elimination of absolutes. I'm not endorsing the elimination of absolutes. There are confessions of our faith that we do not get to debate. In those essentials, the scriptures. We must have absolute obedience to our Lord and worship in those things that are non-essential. But in everything we do, because the church becomes something easy to take shots at, in everything we do, we should have the love of Christ constrain us, bind us, knit us together. There are some absolutes that we're going to stand for and sometimes divide over. There are some non-essentials that we should honor and worship Christ with the way we handle them. But in everything we do, there should be a clear testimony that we belong to Christ as our Lord and we should display his love to us, to each other. So let's fellowship, let's worship, and let's live together as brothers and sisters in that instruction. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the word that feeds us, the word that equips us. We're thankful, God, that we are preserved, that scripture obviously is a light to our path because there are so many self-inflicted struggles in church community. And so your word is illuminating our path. So Lord, cause us not to lean on our own understandings, but in every way, in every question, in every consideration, acknowledge you and be grateful and rejoice that you direct our path. So for your name's sake, lead us into pastures and still water. Glorify yourself by transforming our church into a clearer testimony of what it means that you are our Lord. That men would see the goodness, the genuineness and sincerity of our transformation and glorify our God who is in heaven. Thank you, Father, for feeding us again and equipping us for righteousness' sake. In Jesus' name. Amen.